0: This is episode 170 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is James Curtis. Dr. James Curtis is an SLP, clinical researcher, and board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders. He earned a bachelor's degree from Michigan State University in 2009 and a master's degree in speech-language pathology from New York University in 2013. Dr. Curtis worked for several years as a voice and swallowing specialist at the Voice and Swallowing Center and the Head and Neck Cancer Center at the University of California, San Francisco, during which time he also completed his clinical fellowship. He then earned his Ph.D. in 2020 from Columbia University, where he worked in Dr. Michelle Trochet's lab for the study of upper airway dysfunction. Dr. Curtis is currently completing a two-year postdoctoral fellowship funded by the American Brain Foundation and the Parkinson's Foundation in collaboration with the American Academy of Neurology to study respiratory swallow coordination in people with Parkinson's disease. He is passionate about completing clinical translational research related to swallowing evaluation and treatment, which can be immediately implemented into clinical practice. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, a mobile fees business owner and founder of the MedSLP Collective. This podcast is all about delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for treatment or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is to help ditch the old school ways of the past that no longer serve you or your patients to reinvigorate your passion for our field, to broaden your knowledge about our scope of practice, and to inspire you to practice at the top of your license. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride, be open and willing to learn, because let's face it, your patients deserve that kind of care. With that, let's dive right in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely.
1: Hello, James. Hey, how are you doing? Good. Thank you so much for joining me. (laughs) Yes, of course. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: Yes, all right, so tell the people who you
1: are. All right, yeah, my name is James Curtis. I am originally from Michigan, but I currently live in New York City. Um, I'm actually recording here in Michigan with my, my parents nearby. So um, if you have any dogs barking, that's why. I graduated uh, from my master's in 2013 um, and then worked clinically for a few years out at um, the University of California, San Francisco. So in their voice and swallowing center and in their head and neck cancer center. So, you know, the kind of the perspective that I come at with things is very much from a an otolaryngology kind of department setting where most of my experience, um, about half my experience was in voice, the other half was in swallowing. And most of the swallowing experience was um, pretty much instrumental assessments with a lot of dysphagia planning and management planning for people to um, you know, then go off to see their local SLPs. So we were a, a large referral center and we would kind of be tasked with performing pretty in-depth evaluations and trying to come up with pretty good treatment plans. Now I just finished my PhD and I'm currently a postdoc. And the type of research that I'm interested in is clinical research and clinical translational research, things that we can kind of immediately do and implement into clinical Beautiful. practice. Um, exactly. And so I also kind of have a rehabilitation lens to, to a lot of this since, that's, um, since that is my background. Awesome. So that's a little bit about me. I love it. All
0: right. Thanks so much, James. All right. So what are we going to talk about today?
1: Yeah. So kind of all things fees related, um, ways that we can kind of enhance our endoscopic practice patterns to improve our ability to actually kind of interpret what it is that we're seeing on fees. Um, so this, this uh, kind of topic that we'll be talking about is really kind of meant for people who are performing fees or who are obtaining fees videos and performing their own interpretation of it.
0: Beautiful. All right. Where
1: should we start? Um, We can start from the beginning. I'll share. If you'd like, I I can share my screen. And then um, I've got my notes. Sure. Let me give you permission there. All right. Let me set this up quickly. Yeah, I mean, I think that we could probably just start from the beginning. Some of this is going to be a little bit more basic on the front end, but just to kind of get everyone on the same page. Um, As you, Teresa, and many of your listeners know, um, flexible endoscopic evaluations of swallowing or fees was originally popularized and um, originally published in the late 1980s by Dr. Susan Langmore. And, you know, from the moment of its popularization through even today, um, as recent as a month ago, fees has been frequently compared to and contrasted with video fluoroscopy. And this is because for a long time, fluoro was seen as kind of the quote unquote gold standard for swallowing assessment. Um, Now, of course, you and I know that uh, that doesn't necessarily exist this idea of a gold standard, because we know that these two exams provide pretty kind of unique and complementary information. And so when we use the term gold standard, and I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with that term, I do think it means we need to be a little bit more specific about what we're talking about when we're talking about something that's a gold standard. Because I do think there are some differences between these exams, obviously. And so what I'll start off talking about is some of the data that's actually made these comparisons between these two studies, so that we actually know what are some of the advantages of fees over fluoro. So there were about, you know, when I reviewed the literature in preparation for this talk, um, I think there were about 23 different studies that I was able to identify that compared fees to fluoro. Um, a good chunk of these were studies that were non-simultaneous, meaning um, a fees was done and then later the fluoro was done on the same patient or vice versa, um, with a little bit less of them being these simultaneous studies where fees was done at the same time on the same patient um, as with fluoro. So a few of these studies looked at swallowing kinematics specifically. So when we say kinematics, that's just a fancy term talking about movement of swallowing structures. It's what we, it's a term that's used in, in um, movement sciences. Um, so when we say swallowing kinematics, we're talking about how far structures are moving or how fast and kind of the timing and sequencing of these different movements. So, I'm going to discuss one of those three studies briefly that looked at um, swallowing kinematics as seen on fees and floral. And this was during a simultaneous study. Um, so, this was a study that was published in 1998 by Dr. Logeman and colleagues. And they looked at, um, examined the frequency with which examiners, so people rating the fees um, and the florals, could see 12 different swallowing events during this simultaneous study. The examiners viewed um, 96 swallows across eight different healthy adults. So a decent number of swallows, but a kind of a relatively limited number of healthy adults that were being uh, uh, analyzed. And they looked at things like oral transit, pharyngeal transit, swallowing reaction time. So that's our our pharyngeal swallow initiation. Things like laryngeal elevation, pharyngeal constriction, and kind of some laryngeal movements. And what the results of this study showed was that four of the 12 swallowing events were only seen on fluoro and never visible on fees. And so those four um, swallowing events were hyoid movement, the closure um, at the entrance to the laryngeal vestibule, Cricopharyngeal opening and base of tongue to posterior pharyngeal wall contact. And I think this makes sense. Any of us that's done fees, we don't see the highway move. We uh, don't see the UES open. I, I think I've seen that a couple of times in people with very severe head and neck cancer where there was absolutely no pharyngeal constriction, but they could still miraculously open up their UES. Um, people with head and neck cancer, I think they're. Pretty amazing sometimes.
0: Amazing. Uh, yeah.
1: yeah. So, um, yeah. So four of these 12 kinematic events that were compared were never seen on fees, but were seen on fluoro. Three of the 12 swallowing events were only seen on fees and never on fluoro. So these three events were medial movement of the arytenoids, um, uh, complete arytenoid adduction, meaning that the arytenoids were contacting each other, and then the onset of complete vocal fold closure, but not, not the offset. So we're getting a little bit more information related to laryngeal swallowing kinematics seen on fees, but not fluoro. And then the onset and the offset of the remaining five um, kinematic events were seen more frequently on fluoro than for fees. And so these included oral bolus transit, pharyngeal bolus transit, that pharyngeal swallow uh, initiation, laryngeal elevation, and posterior pharyngeal wall, and and, uh, epiglottic contact. So... I think what this and the, the similar studies um, like this found is that Floro seems to have the edge on identifying swallowing kinematics when compared to fees. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It's not uh, 100% true across all events, right? Like we were saying, we can kind of see some events related to laryngeal swallowing kinematics. But you know, if we're interested in looking at swallowing physiology so the kinematics associated with swallowing it would seem that fluoro has kind of the edge um, over fees but there are other advantages that we need to talk about when comparing fees and fluoro and these include functional swallowing outcomes um, so when I use the term functional swallowing outcomes, just as a bit of terminology, I'm thinking about things like swallowing safety and swallowing efficiency, and these are terms that are becoming a little bit more popular in clinical practice. Um, I, I think it was really well laid out in uh, Dr. Kate Hutchison's article um, outlining the Digest Scale, where impairments in swallowing safety would indicate penetration and aspiration. Of course, is that safe or unsafe? That's a, another time for another topic, but. And impairments in swelling efficiency would be things like pharyngeal residue. Okay, so let's look at these, these studies that compare fees and fluoro on functional swelling outcomes now. So there's about 17 studies that I identified of those um, simultaneous and non-simultaneous studies that compared fees and fluoro on these functional swallowing outcome measures. And what we see is that in general, there's actually pretty good um, to excellent agreement between these two exams. Meaning if we saw residue penetration or aspiration in one exam, we were probably gonna see it on the other type of evaluation too. This is a, a good thing, we wanna know this but when there was disagreement between fees and fluoro what we tended to see what we tend to see in this uh, body of literature is that fees tends to have the advantage we are more likely to be identifying residue penetration and aspiration more frequently and maybe more severely on endoscopy than on fluoroscopy um, so, 10 of these studies looked at pharyngeal residue, seven of which said fees identified residue more often than fluoro, two of which identified the opposite, and one which found no difference. In terms of penetration, nine of these 17 studies looked at penetration. Eight of them identified that fees, if there was a difference, fees was identifying it more frequently than fluoro. The, the results for aspiration is a little bit less um, strong, but I still think still sways towards fees. So 16 of these 17 studies reported findings related to aspiration. Um, and then of these eight identified that fees was seeing aspiration more frequently if there was a difference. Five indicated that fluoro did and three identified no, um, no difference between exams. And so these were, these 17 studies that I'm talking about were all non simultaneous studies, meaning that um, the fees most of the time was actually done first and then shortly thereafter was completed in um, using video fluoroscopy. And I should also mention for the pediatric SLPs out there, um, these aren't all adult studies. I think three to four of these studies were actually done in pediatric patients. And um, there's a lot more of these comparative studies in the pediatric population that's been coming out over the last four to five years. In fact, one was just published in December. But there's a couple of things that we need to think about when we're interpreting these non-simultaneous studies. One is that they, especially kind of the older studies, didn't necessarily use the same swelling protocol between exam types. So five of the seventeen studies actually had different swelling conditions, meaning different number of trials or different sizes of boluses, maybe even different consistencies of boluses. you know I There's also differences in the type of barium that was being used, especially in these older studies. So, you know, currently when people are performing video fluoroscopy, a lot of us are using ultra thin barium, which is a little bit more representative of things like water and milk. But a lot of the older studies, ultra thin barium wasn't necessarily around. So they were, they were thicker. And so it's possible that people were just penetrating and aspirating less because it was a thicker bolus compared to water, right? We can't rule that out. And There's also the possibility that fees might actually worsen swallowing function. and I, I use that term lightly, but it is something that we need to consider. There's three studies that have actually looked at that topic of does fees or the presence of a laryngoscope worsen someone's swallow. I was always taught that the healthy larynx can kind of take a joke, so to speak, meaning that a good larynx should be able to compensate for the fact that there is a, a scope in there. And two of these three studies that we looked at were done in healthy adults. And in fact, there were no differences in swelling function as a result of FEES. So the design of these studies was that people underwent video fluoroscopy or manometry, both with and without a scope. So it was within subject um, to study designs. And there were no differences in kinematics in pressures or penetration aspiration scale scores in these. What's interesting is that there was a study that was published by Adachi and colleagues in 2017, and this was actually done in more vulnerable patient populations and people with suspected dysphagia. I believe they had neurodegenerative disease. um, It might've been a a heterogeneous group of um, diagnoses. And in this study, they actually did find that there was a difference. So uh, there was actually a worsening in the frequency and severity of pharyngeal residue and an increase in the frequency of aspiration. And people were randomized. Sometimes they had the fees first um, with the fluoro on at the same time, or it was no fluoro or it was no fees um, with the fluoro and then the fees was added. So people were randomized. It was a pretty good study design. And, you know, we we need a lot more research. We can't use one piece of evidence to suggest something, but, you know, it does... it's something that I have in the back of my head that maybe there's an influence there, but if there's an influence there, it's probably for people with dysphagia and that in itself is pretty informative. I think.
0: I guess. So what, what's the implications of that then James? Cause when I think of that, I think of, okay, so if it makes things worse then are the recommendations to maybe falsely recommend a thickened liquid or a more restrictive diet or something like that, you know, I guess that's where we really, I, I think this is really valuable in in how it leads our recommendations.
1: Yeah, I think it it obviously is going to impact our impressions of their swallow. I think that if we're seeing that someone, if we're if we're identifying that, it seems as though people with dysphagia may be more susceptible to a change in their swallowing function as a result of the fees. I think that's informative, right? It's telling us uh, we're not expecting to see impairments in functional swallowing outcomes in healthy adults. So if we're seeing these changes to functional swallowing outcomes, you know, is that going to be the same as what we would see on fluoro? Maybe not necessarily. So I think it would impact our ability to compare um, a patient who's undergone both types of evaluations. I don't know how much, personally, it would impact my clinical decision making because it's still I'm still getting information that maybe their swelling mechanism is a little bit impaired. And then we're still going to try different strategies to try to, you know, maybe reduce the frequency and severity. And I guess it's possible that some strategies might actually be more effective without a scope in there. I think that's probably the only way I can think about it influencing my clinical um, uh, decision-making, but not necessarily my clinical impressions, if that makes sense. Yep. I don't know. Um, we're just kind of doing our best to s- Best to synthesize this information. Yeah, no,
0: cool. That's a great. i never heard of that study. I love it. Thank you so much for bringing that up.
1: Um, and so because of this, because there's potentially differences in the barium consistencies in the swallowing protocols and the slight possibility that maybe fees um, impact swallowing function in people with dysphagia, we should really kind of rely more on these simultaneous studies to determine how are, you know, what exam is quote unquote better for looking at functional swelling outcomes. So there are seven studies that I found that have performed simultaneous uh, evaluations, simultaneous fees and Florida. And again, we're seeing good to excellent agreement between these two exams. So when something was seen on one exam, it was likely seen on on another exam. This is a good thing. Generally speaking though, when there was disagreement between these two exams, we tended to see an edge for fees. Um, so four of the seven studies looked at residue, all four identified um, residue more frequently on fees and for fluoro. For penetration, and most of the studies identify penetration more frequently for fees than for fluoro. And there was one study that actually identified um, penetration being seen more frequently for fluoro than for fees. And what's interesting about this study, and it's the same finding for aspiration, is that this study where penetration and aspiration were seen more frequently for fluoro, this study was actually completed in Europe, where they their radiopaque contrast is not barium. It's a um, contrast that doesn't necessarily adhere to the skin as well. It doesn't create kind of this coating effect and it's a little bit more translucent. So I'm planting that seed for something we'll be talking about in the future.
0: That's totally fascinating. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And all these other studies were done with with barium as the contrast, which kind of has this, it's opaque, you know, it has kind of this coating effect if you've ever used it. So I don't know, maybe, maybe that's playing a role in this finding, maybe not. And For aspiration, three of these studies looked at aspiration and it was identified more frequently for fees and for fluoro. So, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that based on this research, fluoro is probably the exam that you would want to ideally recommend if you're looking for swallowing physiology, specifically kinematics because there's also pressures out there and that, that would be manometry, right? but if we are really interested in functional swallowing outcomes fees is probably the exam of choice so you might say exam of choice you might say gold standard um that's kind of a a hot topic i don't mind shying away from hot topics um but these this is kind of the framework with which you would be thinking about your ideal recommendations and it's not to say that you can't make inferences of swallowing physiology on on fees But, you know, it's just understanding what exams are are ideal for our ideal recommendations.
0: And while we are on the topic of fees, I want to take a quick break to tell you about one of our wonderful sponsors, Patcon Medical. Are you trying to start a fees program at your facility or are you thinking about going out on your own with mobile fees? Here are two simple steps you should take right away. Number one, listen to episode 164 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, where I speak with Kristoff from Patcom Medical about purchasing these equipment. Step two, get in touch with Patcom as they will assist you based on your individual needs. You can reach them at info at patcommedical.com or go to patcommedical.com for more information. That's P A T C O M M E D I C A L dot com for more information. All right, let's get back to the episode.
1: Okay, so. Because assessment of these functional swallowing outcomes, so residue penetration and aspiration, is one of the primary reasons that a clinician may use or recommend fees to assess swallowing, it's probably important to develop an understanding of what is normal and maybe even how this differs from what we see on Florida in terms of normal variability. So um, now I'll talk a little bit about normal variability as seen on fees. Um, So In reviewing the literature in preparation for this presentation, there's lots of lots of reviewing that I did. I was able to identify about 15 different studies where we could probably deduce information related to normal findings because they were fees on healthy adults. Most of these studies or a little over half of these studies were completed by um, the great Dr. Susan Butler um she is i think a phenomenal clinical researcher and was so influential to me as a clinician me as well um, me as, yeah. as well yes. so everyone out there look up Susan Butler Dr. Susan Butler's research it's really just fantastic work especially if you're performing fees and about half of the other research were completed by equally amazing researchers and clinicians so uh, yes I guess before we dive into what these normal findings are, I want to first describe a bit about the structure of these research studies because this is going to play an important role in terms of how you and I standardize our fees exams. So these studies had a median sample size of about 30 adults, with some studies having as little as 15 adults, and other studies, one study in particular, having a little over 200 adults. About a third of them looked at healthy young adults, a third looked at healthy older adults, and a third looked at both healthy young and healthy older adults. Um, these, salts, these studies really varied considerably in terms of the types of protocols that were being used to assess these functional swelling outcomes as well. So about a third of the studies had only three swelling trials for the fees exams. So we're gonna wanna take that with a grain of salt. About a third had about nine swallowing trials for the fees exam, and about a third had 30 swallowing trials per fees exam, roughly, give or take, 28 to 32, I believe. Additionally, about half the studies examined only thin liquids, including things like milk or water, and I think one study actually used barium. And half the study looked at both liquids as well as purees and solid foods. And then the sizes of these boluses varied from five milliliters all up to twenty milliliters and even a few hundred milliliters. Um, and then there were differences in terms of were they using green dye or they using blue dye. So, with that said, what did these studies show? All right, well, let's first talk about pharyngeal residue. On average, these studies demonstrate that 40 to 50 percent of um, people, of, of healthy adults, will exhibit greater than trace residue at some point during the FEES exam. However, there's a considerable amount of variability. Um, some studies say no one, zero percent of people will demonstrate greater than trace residue, and other studies say up to 60 percent of people will demonstrate um, greater than trace amounts of residue at some point during the FEES ex- uh, exam. In terms of penetration, we see that anywhere between 10 to 30% of people will demonstrate penetration at some point during a fees exam, representing about five to 8% of all swallows. But again, there's a decent amount of variability across these studies. So some studies say 0% of people will demonstrate penetration. Other studies say 83% of people will demonstrate uh, penetration demonstrating a range of about zero to 25% of swallows. Um, So there's variability in this um, across studies. And what's important to know is that when penetration was present, it was typically silent and shallow. I know we don't say silent penetration too much and it's because we don't typically think it exists, but this research supports that, right? People aren't necessarily coughing in response to penetration. So if we were to use the PAS scale, the penetration aspiration scale published by Rosenbeck and colleagues, this would be a PAS of two if penetration was present. In terms of aspiration, um, the the variability is a little bit more narrow. So here Most studies would indicate about 5% of people will demonstrate aspiration at some point during the fees exam, representing about 1% of swallows. But there is some variability across studies. Some studies say 0% of people, other studies say up to 36% of people, representing anywhere from 0 to 3% of swallows. And similar to penetration actually, aspiration when identified and when characterized um, in these studies was typically silent so a PEA of eight, so people aren't typically coughing in response to aspiration, healthy adults, but, and there's only a couple of studies that actually quantify how much aspiration was present, and it's pretty descriptive, and in the discussion sections, and actually I think it's pretty much only Dr. Uh, Doctor Butler who talks about this, um, when aspiration was present was quote-unquote P sized P-E-A, like, like the legume. Um, so it's a very small amount of aspiration, and people aren't necessarily responding to it. I don't know if they actually felt it, but they're not coughing or, or throat clearing in response to it. So while understanding all of this provides us with a nice foundational understanding of what is normal, we see that there's a pretty wide range in findings in terms of what is normal for residue penetration and aspiration that's reported in fees. And so this, this really kind of begs the question is why are there such differences, um, right? So we expect there to be variability in healthy adults. We expect some people to be penetrating, some people to be aspirating. But why are there such large differences across studies? Why are some studies saying there are 0% of people having residue, and other studies are saying 83% of people are having residue, right? And we need to take a closer look at this, because this is going to influence our idea of what is normal, quote unquote, as seen on fees. And I think based off of the research that's out there, this depends on kind of three, shall I say, like classes of of different parameters. We have our endoscopic practice patterns that could potentially influence things. We have the swallowing protocols themselves that might influence things and how we are actually interpreting our phases, right? And that's gonna vary a lot across clinicians and researchers. And so that's what I'll spend the the rest of this um, talk kind of talking about, kind of taking us through each of these three, these three points. So let's first talk about endoscopic practice patterns. Um, This is not all inclusive, but the things I'd like to discuss specifically is the use of topical nasal anesthetics, the use of vasoconstrictors and the use of lubrication, right? And anyone who's new to fees, these are things that we're constantly thinking about and struggling over and do we use it? Do we not use it? And, you know, maybe rightfully so, rightfully so. So let's first talk about topical nasal anesthetics. There may be more studies that are out there. Um, I I stopped at around 11 studies because I was kind of seeing the same results over and over again. Um, But there are essentially 11 different studies that I found um, published originally from 1997 all the way up to 2015, where people, researchers and clinicians were performing flexible laryngoscopy, so a, a fees exam essentially, um, and they were reporting in these studies measures associated with pain and discomfort, measures associated with residue, penetration aspiration, and also laryngeal sensation, the laryngeal adductory reflex. Six of the 11 studies indicated that there was no change in pain as a result of the use of topical nasal anesthetics. Four of the 11 studies indicated that there was actually a reduction in pain, um, and one study indicated. There was no change. There's actually more change in pain associated with the use of this. Right. So the reason we use topical nasal anesthetics is in large part to reduce pain, to make the fees a little bit more tolerable and comfortable for the patient, especially if our exams are, you know, 10 to 20 minutes long. And so this synthesizing this information, this would suggest that there's probably not a huge change in pain as a result of topical nasal anesthetics. Um, and when there was a reduction in pain, it was typically in studies using relatively larger doses of, of topical nasal anesthetics. Two of these studies looked at the laryngeal adductor reflex, so that's um, using you know an air pulse, which we don't have anymore, or using a scope to tap the arytenoids and see do they um, adduct um, reflexively. And these studies identified no change in the laryngeal adductor reflex as a result of nasal anesthetics. This is a good thing, right? So if you are using nasal anesthetics, then um, we could be pretty certain that, or somewhat certain, I guess, that it's not influencing laryngeal sensation. Only two studies looked at residue and didn't find a change. So whether you used anesthetic or not, it didn't influence whether or not um, residue was gonna be present. With regards to penetration and aspiration, three of the five studies found that there actually was a slight worsening in penetration aspiration as a result of the anesthetics, and two of the five studies found no change. It should be noted that the studies identifying a change skewed towards having slightly larger doses of the topical nasal anesthetics.
0: Wait, can I can I back you up a minute, James? Okay, so, so my big thing with topical nasal anesthetics is that some states were allowed to administer them and some we are not. So I know that there's been like I don't I don't want to say arguments, but disagreements between camps whether we should use them or whether we shouldn't use them. And people need to consider that we don't even have the power to administer them in some states. They have to be done by a doctor anyway. So I've been involved in some conversations where, you know, people have advocated so hard for getting them because they need you know, a doctor or a nurse to administer them because we're not allowed to. And then you present this data anyway. So is it really worth...
1: Right. beating down that
0: door to
1: begin with. <laughs> Teresa, I think, that's, I
0: think that's such an
1: important point, you know? And as a as a individual who's trying to present this to you in a somewhat neutral fashion as, as yeah. a researcher, um, I'm, I'm trying not to be biased in a lot of the language that I'm using. And I was trying not to be biased in the systematic reviews that I was essentially completing. But yeah, as a clinician and understanding... I actually didn't have too much of a barrier working at UCSF because there were physicians always around who would happily, um, you know, do it or or write the order for it. But um, clinically, this this makes it a lot more feasible if. Topical nasal anesthetics isn't really influencing things that much in terms of pain and maybe making things worse in terms of airway invasion. This is a good thing, the fact that um, we don't necessarily need it right because it's just one less thing we actually have to worry about, and so I think that's a very important observation.
0: When I was working in the nursing homes in New York, it was a big deal because it was just made it one more thing that you know we needed to have doctors involved in it and I really I don't like to give away our power, quote unquote, like this is within our scope of practice. This is something we are 100% fully capable of doing on our own. And then, you know, then you start bringing more hands into the
1: pot for what the data shows is really no good reason whatsoever. Yeah. Preach. Yeah. (laughs) I, you know, when I, when I was at UCSF at the time, you know, we were using topical nasal anesthetics in a less standardized fashion, um, but also tended to skew towards using it more often rather than less often. And I'm not there anymore, so I don't want to speak to what they're doing now. Um, I I think they might've changed, but so, So when I started off my career as a clinician, I had the luxury, I don't know if it was a luxury, um, of using it. And then when I transitioned to my PhD, where I was working in a clinical research lab, performing fees every day or or supervising fees every day, we were not at a medical center. So we weren't performing it with topical nasal anesthetics. And at first I was a little hesitant. I was like, how is this going to go? And so I'm you know, speaking to all the clinicians out there who are used to using topical nasal anesthetics, um, it might feel a little scary to kind of let go of. But I will tell you, it was not long after abandoning it because I had to that I was not seeing any differences in um, swallowing or in the the comfort of the evaluation. So, you know, that I think the data kind of speaks for itself in in that case. And I think you know, what I've done here is synthesize a lot of research for you all, but it does also kind of vary from patient to patient. So there might be patients where it is actually pretty helpful, but by and large it doesn't seem to impact most people most of the time for most of these outcome measures. So then the next practice pattern I'd like to talk about is the use of vasoconstrictors, which we use because we want to try to open up the nasal cavity, the nares, to try to maybe make it more comfortable for the patient, and also have an easier time passing the scope through their nose and into their pharynx. So there's less data that's, that's looked at this, five studies that I identified. And so these were again looking at, at them within the context of either a fees or just a more general flexible laryngoscopic evaluation. Um, and they also looked at things like pain discomfort, residue, penetration aspiration, and the laryngeal adductor reflex with and without the use of a vasoconstrictor. So let's kind of go through those outcome measures again. Two of these five studies indicated no change in pain, two studies indicated less pain, and one study indicated more pain. So maybe vasoconstrictors, if it seems as though vasoconstrictors don't really help with pain. It's possible there might be a small improvement in pain, but not likely. Only one study looked at laryngeal sensation and there was no change. It's hard to make a conclusion with one study, but it would appear as um, it doesn't. and theoretically i don't understand why it would so i think this this makes sense only one study looked at um the use of vasoconstrictors and its influence on pharyngeal residue and there was no change and i think that makes sense why why would it and only one study looked at penetration and aspiration and again no change so this would suggest that if you're using vasoconstrictors probably not going to influence functional swallowing outcomes that's a good thing if you're using it but it doesn't seem to you know, influenced um, pain and discomfort of the evaluation. So, why would you use it? Um, so, it's kind of a similar discussion as the topical nasal anesthetics. And to kind of, you know, Teresa, to speak to your previous point, it's just one extra potential barrier that we might not need to place in front of ourselves. So, so there we have vasoconstrictors.
0: What What do you think about what do you think about the placebo effect for
1: this stuff, James? I mean, you know, a, a lot of these studies. When they are, uh, a lot of these are actually pretty nice, well-designed studies. Um, you know, they're double-blinded, randomized, crossover studies with the use of things like saline as opposed to an actual basal So they are in these study designs, including the use of really a placebo. Some of them have nothing, but some of them are saline, which act as a placebo, and they're not finding any difference. So were they
0: Were they telling them, like, we're going to administer something... To help with pain, or because I, I feel like if I just heard that, I have patients that would be like, "Oh, wonderful!" Like,
1: yeah, <laughs> that is a that's actually a really good point. I know some of the studies. Yeah, boy, you're you're quizzing me right now. <laughs> I know some of the studies. The the physicians, because um, I think a lot of these were done for um, just kind of more general laryngoscopic evaluations and not fees um and so the physicians performing the phases i know in a few of these studies were blinded so they didn't know what was being administered and in fact they didn't administer a separate physician would administer it then they would come in and perform the evaluation and i honestly don't remember if the patients were um although four of these five studies that i'm looking at um, was a double-blinded randomized crossover so i'm assuming that double blinded would mean the person performing it and also the patient um so I, i feel pretty confident saying the patient was was blinded as to what was being given, not as did they know one was gonna be a placebo and one was not, that I'm not 100% sure. But they didn't know what was being given to them, uh, I'm, a, I'm assuming for most of these studies based off of the design. But yeah, because I, I, I think that's a really good point. I think like when you do this placebo and you're like, oh, this is gonna like make it feel a lot easier. Yeah. Like, I think there's something to be said for that. Uh, I don't know if the studies provided that detail regarding what was said to the patient like oh this is meant to do x y and z i mean clinically i feel like that's the case but i've also stopped paying attention to that and so maybe it was just kind of a you know confirmation bias that i had beforehand yeah i'm not sure like
0: i feel like that's a huge issue to be honest like it's something that i've experienced so much like I've gone in to see patients and either like the nurse or the treating SLP will say something like, you're not going to like this test or this isn't going to feel good. And then you go in and they immediately have their guard up. And I have to say, you know, no, like it's, it may be uncomfortable. It's not painful. You know, Then I have to go the total other way. And then they're like, Oh, you made me feel so much better. Okay. So, (laughs) you know, it's like,
1: (laughs) That, you know That is an excellent idea for you know all the the grad students or new clinicians to, to do it in service for your colleagues, because a lot of it, UCSF puts on a great fees course. There's lots of great fees courses out there, and um, when I've helped out with some of these fees courses, that's like one of the biggest things that I'm kind of a proponent for. I'm a proponent for having good ergonomics, because um, a comfortable exam for you is a comfortable exam for your patient, and our... The way we interact with our patients for the evaluation counsel them, and you know don't promise them you know the rainbow, but you're not scaring them either, and so right. yeah, I think that that's an important point, I guess so um, but maybe this idea of a placebo could be clinically introduced with this concept of lubrication jelly, um, which is the last kind of practice pattern that we'll talk about, so lots of studies looking at this. I'm kidding. There's two studies that I was identified <laughs> that actually looked at the use of lubrication for a flexible transnasal laryngoscopic evaluation. So these weren't done for feces. They were done specifically just to like pass a scope through someone's nose and look at the larynx. Um, so these are two studies um, done um, 150 patients each study, and they were single blinded randomized. And so in the first study, What was done was patients had the flexible laryngoscopic evaluation performed either with a lubrication jelly, they used KY jelly, or no lubrication jelly. And they looked at Pain and discomfort, and they found no differences in pain or discomfort as a result of lubrication. Right. Um, yeah, right. Such but, a <laughs> okay, but but <laughs> Teresa, there's I think there's maybe good news for you. Okay, so <laughs> okay. Then, what they also <laughs> looked at was that there was less difficulty passing the scope with the lubrication jelly. But it did result in worse image quality and we've all experienced that we use our our lubrication jelly. That's our friend and then it gunked up the camera, especially when someone has, you know, a, a weak swallow or something. And we're like, well, this, this is annoying. So then they did a follow up study a year later where they compared two different lubrications. One was that KY jelly. Again, the other water which i think is like i never like never thought of that before um and this study has been around for 14 years <laughs> so, so funny so, so funny. i needed to get on this bandwagon a yeah. while ago yeah and so what they found was that there was again no difference in pain or discomfort when comparing the jelly to the water and maybe it's just because there's no difference in pain or discomfort period i'm not sure but what they identified was that there was less difficulty passing the scope with the water as opposed to the jelly, which I think was not what I would expect. And what we might expect is that there was better image quality with the water when compared to the um, the jelly. So this would suggest that if you are using lubrication jelly, although you might not need to, that water might suffice and not Jelly, Right. Um, so again, this is like one less barrier, one less yeah. cost that we have one to worry about. Yeah. 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 So there we there we have it. So I think to kind of include and kind of summarize these endoscopic practice patterns before we move on to protocols and interpretation methods. Topical nasal anesthetics, probably not too helpful um, in reducing pain. It might, but might be at the consequence of increased airway invasion. You know, this is not a formal recommendation. I don't want to go on record saying this, although I guess I am. I would probably clinically just avoid using topical nasal anesthetics um, because yeah. it doesn't seem to be helping, or it could at the cost of swan safety. Vasoconstrictors, probably not too helpful in reducing pain. So maybe avoid for simplicity's sake. And lubrication, probably not too helpful in using pain in reducing pain. But if you do use it, then maybe just stick with water. I'm so intrigued, James. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> <laughs> well, give it a go. Give it a go. Um, we're still not performing visas here. Um, yeah, but hopefully, yeah. hopefully we can start again soon.
0: I think I ju- I'm so intrigued by it. I really think the placebo effect too. Like I'm just so curious of how, like how the information is presented and things yeah. like that too. And just, I just know for myself, like whenever I go in for medical procedures or anything and, you know, what they say to you, you're going to feel like just makes such a huge difference.
1: It it really does. Now, Teresa, I have in our lab, we, we, you know, we have lots of graduate interns, we have clinical fellows in our lab. And when people go to fees courses, they are all about using lubrication jelly when they get back. And then we then I just have issues with, uh, you know, it dunking the camera, and then we have to come out. We have to clean the scope. We have to go back in. Right, so it's just right. more insertions. And so right. um, then I encourage the the interns and the CFs to try it without. And honestly. The more I reflect on it, the more there actually isn't that big of a difference. And I really think the placebo, quote unquote, comes down to how we're counseling them. You know, being pretty objective. Whole thing is going to take this amount of time. Um, you might feel it might feel a little weird or uncomfortable at first, but you should get used to it for a couple of minutes. And then just like, there's no surprises, you know. Um, and I think that, and how we kind of carry ourselves professionally as if we are experts, you know, fake it till you make it. If you're not already there, um, really goes a long way.
0: I think this is a great place to end. Next week, James will be back to talk more about the influence of swallowing protocols, interpretation methods, and the need to standardize the performance and interpretation of fees to maximize clinical outcomes. To download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There, you can also sign up for our email so that you'll never miss another episode. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe, leave a review on iTunes. And share it on social media with your friends and colleagues, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at tracarichard.com. Special credit to Danny V. Socrates for her amazing audio and editing skills, and to Marissa Hendrickson for managing all the things behind the scenes. As always, thanks so much for listening, and see you next week.